Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 135, and the next two episodes are a special two-part series because usually when I interview entrepreneurs who have grown and sold a company, I have about an hour to interview them and to dive into what they do for their business, their journey, some struggles, and some key highlights about their exit. And it's very difficult to really dive into how they grew the business and then the complications and or successes throughout the technical exit. So as I was having a conversation with Michael Kaplan, who is the guest today and on the next episode, who took Zero Res, which is a carpet cleaning company, from 300 grand in revenue to $18 million in sales and revenue over the course of a little over a decade, I was like, you know what? I have to understand for my own curiosity and for the listeners how he and his partner scaled that business successfully like they did. And then the second part, which is next week's episode, is the technical complications and tension and really in-depth story that he was more than comfortable sharing about his partnership and his exit that he eventually had from the business. So today's episode is the growth and the scaling of Zero Res that Michael and his partner did, how they did it, why they were able to take some radio ads in the financial crisis and then blow the roof off of their business. And then next episode, next week, will be all about how he and his partner and their complications and their disagreements turned into Michael's eventual exit. So if you're really curious on how you can take a carpet cleaning company from 300 grand to 18 million and some of the technical things that Michael did to actually scale his business, tune in today. And then if you wanna know more about his exit and how he ended up using a shotgun clause which is called a Mexican standoff in order to exit his partnership, then tune into next week. Without further ado, here's Michael Kaplan's story and how he grew Zero Res. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Morning, Michael. How are you doing? Fantastic. How are you, Ryan? Doing good. Looking forward to this show. Uh, we got introduced to a mutual friend. I think it was Lucas, wasn't it? From Bank of the West. Oh, yeah. It's always a banker. <laughs> yeah, right. They're all they're always out hustling. And, and so what I wanted, you know, what we're going to be doing here is a couple uh, part series because you have a awesome story about how you grew the business. And then you also have a very interesting exit story that we'll be uh, covering in the second round. But, you know, as you and I were talking, I think, you know, what you did in the services businesses to, to actually scale is unbelievably interesting because I think you and I have both been, uh, I think in peer groups and, you know, these, uh, uh, the round tables and everybody is always wondering, how do I grow? And I just did a, a recent episode with a gentleman that was really diving into sales. And I think it's really interesting because I think there's so many people, especially in today's world with digital marketing and all the different ways that these, that entrepreneurs want to silver bullet to grow. And I think your story is going to be fun because a lot of people are going to learn a lot. So maybe give everybody a little bit of background of, you know, how did you become an entrepreneur? How did you jump into it? Because your story about how that and how you jumped into it is interesting as well. And then we can uh, hit the ground running. Well, uh, don't oversell with the word interesting, but I'll, <laughs> I'll do what I can. 
<laughs> so um, I, I think from an early age, I, I knew I wanted to be in business. I didn't quite know exactly what that meant. And um, I just, you know, I was a guy uh, buying baseball cards and, you know, reselling them to friends and, you know, bringing in packs because I could go to the store and, you know, trying to, I had a side hustle before there was a side hustle, I guess. Um, and I just, you know, from thinking about uh, starting up a screen printing company in ninth grade, to kind of exploring it more in college, I just knew that I wanted to go out and build stuff. And so where that took me, um, did I tell you about Jimmy John's? I don't know if you did actually, huh? Okay, so every time we talk, we'll peel back more of the onion. Uh, <laughs> it's assumed that I'm a pathological liar. So, um, so in college, um, I uh, spent a summer working in Boston. And I worked at a sandwich shop uh, kind of in a cool area of Boston uh, while I had a non-paying internship at Tufts University, uh, which was the reason I was in Boston. And um, working at that sandwich shop, I realized, you know, boy, I really love Jimmy John's. <laughs> I kind of a sandwich junkie. And I thought I could open up a Jimmy John's in Boston. So pick uh, the city with, you know, top five highest rent um, in a, <laughs> one of the dumbest industries to execute uh, a plan on with the highest failure rate. And of course, it's a great idea. So I ran toward that for a handful of years. Um, a buddy of mine was a partner. Uh, partner. Um, I did air quotes. I'm realizing we're just doing audio, but Brian got to see my air yeah, quotes. I, I got it. <laughs> Sexy air quotes. So I ran toward it and I kind of lucked out because contemporaneous with me realizing that it was a horrible idea that I was underfunded and destined for failure, Jimmy John's changed their uh, financing requirements. They wanted me to fully collateralize eight stores before opening the first because they had run into a guy, I think in Austin, Texas. Oh my God. Who, um, he, he opened one store and he couldn't open the second because, you know, uh, it's no bank loan. So we came up a couple million bucks short. But what what I realized was, and the you know, it's fun telling a story where you know it's going to be edited out of the podcast because it's boring. Um, but uh, the fun part was, you know, I realized that I was ill equipped to open uh, Jimmy John's because you know I was I was a twenty year old and uh, undercapitalized. But I got stuck on the question: What if my tomatoes don't show up? And I'm sitting there thinking, well. If I probably have a contract to buy a certain type of tomato from a certain vendor, and I probably have a contract saying I need to use a certain type of tomato with an approved vendor. If they don't show up, you know, how do I, am I breaking my franchise agreement? Am I breaking my uh, distribution agreement with the vendor? You know, how do I, how do I put tomatoes on my damn sandwich? Um, so the tomato question stumped me, which led me to law school. Um, I looked at, do I get a JD or an MBA? or a JD MBA and just be in school forever, uh, decided on a JD um, as an alternative to an MBA, not to practice law because that would be horrible. Um, <laughs> but I, I come from a, a family of attorneys. Uh, they're, they're the good type. They, they work on fun stuff rather than you know, chasing ambulance and suing people. My dad was in M&A for years, bought and sold cool things. Uh, uh, my brother closest in age is the, the tax attorney, um, not income tax, but international REITs and, you know, cool. dealing with, you know, Abu Dhabi and like crazy, he's the smart one. And then the other brother does real estate and general practice stuff. So I kind of knew, okay, these are smart guys doing cool things. And they're really in tune with the business community. Maybe I could get that mojo and just apply it for good rather than evil. Mm -hmm. um, so that led me to uh, 
law school. Um, and I kind of had a sense of, you know, I, I thought I wanted to build something. I thought I wanted to do a startup, uh, not entirely knowing what a pain in the butt that was. And I, in writing a handful of business plans and destroying a handful of business plans, I'll note uh, one of the the more successful things that we never did uh, was Bite Squad. Um, we called it Bring Me Some Candy Damn um, It was <laughs> delivery of anything, anywhere, anytime. <laughs> it, but it was pre-drone, so it was uh, not viable. <laughs> but, so realized, okay, to heck with startups. Let's let's get in there. Um, let's um, uh, let's start in private equity. Even though I I probably didn't have the verbiage or the the full on sense of what that was going to look or feel like, but had a partner and his brother was a carpet cleaner. Um, and he had gone hunting with a guy in real estate who they found out a couple of weeks later that he was looking to buy a carpet cleaning company. So he looked up uh, my friend's brother and said, Hey, you know, can you help me vet this company? They got this cool water technology. I want to see if it's the real deal. This company called Zero Res cleaning. Very few carpets in Minnesota. They had three trucks, two employees, and maybe doing about 20, 25,000 bucks a month. So um, they were losing just a little bit of money, but it, the business model was completely upside down. So they send the carpet cleaner, not the business guy, out to vet the opportunity. He says, Oh, it's the best thing ever. Great business model. Everything. Who cares about money? Right? <laughs> Who cares about money? Um, and, you know, all these trucks are sturdy and, you know, he's. <laughs> Shit. So, um, <laughs> so he says, well, uh, uh, the real estate guy says to the carpet guy, well, do you want to run this thing? I'm going to buy it. And do you know anybody who'd want to invest or help operate or whatever? And he said, well, my, my brother and his idiot friend, me, uh, are looking to, <laughs> you know, buy something. Maybe we'll bring it in. And, you know, so we talked about it and, uh, over many a happy hour, uh, decided we we're going to take over the world and, in, in the carpet cleaning industry. So <laughs> one carpet success, at a time. <laughs> one carpet at a time, baby. Um, so success for us was going to be, you know, let's get to five trucks. We'll get 10 or 15 employees. And I wanted to operate for maybe three years because if I'm going to go out and do turnarounds and buy distressed assets, I probably should figure out how to run a business first, right? You know, add some credibility and authenticity when I say, oh, you should go left instead of right, you know, because I've done it. So going into my last year of law school, we bought the company. Um, we had those two employees, the three trucks, and inherited a radio budget. Uh, they were buying local radio for maybe 3,000 bucks a month and, on um, one station. One sec, um, Michael, I'm curious, because I, I want to definitely go into the radio stuff, but I'm curious, like, so it was you, the real estate partner, and then so what was the actual partnership structure set up? Sure. So there were four of us. The carpet cleaner, Ryan, you're in good company, was a sweat equity partner. He was going to be the general manager. His brother, who I was trying to start a business with, Sean, uh, was a sweat equity partner. Um, I came in as a capital partner, uh, as well as uh, getting a little bit of sweat equity. And I took a discount on my cash day one, because I didn't have to personally guarantee anything. Jim, uh, the uh, guy who found uh, the opportunity and kind of spurred the investment, uh, the real estate guy, he had a development company. So he's doing big housing projects. He, he had a flipping company. He had a rehab company and a residential real estate company and a title company. So he was in really deep in real estate in 2006. We'll, we'll put a 
asterisks by that one because uh, <laughs> things changed that. a little bit. <laughs> but and note uh, that my equity took a discount because I didn't personally guarantee anything in 2006. So story gets fun. No worries. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be getting to that too. Well, and, yeah. and I'm curious, what did you pay for a business that was 25 grand a month in revenue and losing money? Oh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> I mean, it, because I mean, so here, here was the concept. We've got this. It's a franchise, right? So you think of a franchise, you think of Subway. They're going to tell you how much meat to put on the sandwich. They're going to tell you how much, you know, where to put your location. They're where to buy your tomatoes. Package marketing. Where to buy your damn tomatoes, right? They're going <laughs> to give you a business in a box because in theory, they've made a lot of sandwiches, right? They've done this before. So these guys that started Zero Res, they ver were very well-intentioned, very upstanding citizens, I think. Um, and they had this water company that made this cool had this water technology, these machines that took uh, water and salt and electricity and broke it down into component parts, repackages NaCl and H2O with electricity. So electricity zaps the molecules. Hmm. And scientists listening, please excuse this explanation. But this is <laughs> how, how many scientists are followers and listeners of the show. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to lie my pants off and not get caught. So, <laughs> um, so you take this NaCl and H2O, you repackage it. Uh, because you've zapped it with electricity and you get two products. You get hypochlorous acid and sodium hydroxide. Hypochlorous acid, and you know, that's all that comes out of this machine. Two streams of water. One is like organic bleach, the other is like organic soap. So one is low pH, one's high pH. Good at killing stuff, good at cleaning stuff. They they were trying to figure out what verticals can we sell this water into. And one of them had property management experience and said, well, you know, I bet you it cleans the heck out of carpet. So they started a carpet cleaning franchise. <laughs> that's I so, never knew the background of that. That's oh yeah, it's it's uh it's pretty sexy. So <laughs> we we come in and we're valuing. You can't value the revenue stream because it's all blue sky at that point. You know, they're not doing anything that's noteworthy. So we value the assets and we worked to secure most of Minnesota and Western Wisconsin. So we bought territory to make it exclusive that we didn't need it to be exclusive, which was dumb, awesome mistake number one. Dumb because we paid way too much up front. Awesome because once we blew up, we didn't have to renegotiate to carve out our turf. Mm -hmm. And two, we bought these massive, silly trucks that the industry was cleaning uh, with probably, you know, $40,000 trucks. We, we had $140,000 trucks, $130,000 trucks. And the concept, it's all because of the water, because we had to buy a bigger truck because we had to carry more water because they use this water. It, I said it's because of the water, because of the cleaning wand, the tool that spritzes down and sucks up the water. One of the pet projects of one of the founders was he wanted to use this special technology that would create like a, a tornado effect. So as the, the jets... This is also going to be edited out of your awesome podcast. But <laughs> the jets, instead of spraying water outside of the vacuum chamber, it the jets were inside the vacuum chamber. So every ounce of water going down was pulled back up. So you had to spray it down harder, right? You had more pounds per square inch of pressure. So typical carpet cleaners use very little water because they would spray down at maybe 150, 200 PSI. We're spraying down at 600 Holy plus God. PSI. Like yeah. three, four times the rate because there's resistance. There's vacuum flow against 
the water. So we had to bring 400 gallons of water with us everywhere. So we needed these oh massive trucks. <laughs> these trucks like literally were out cleaning a club in the middle of the night. The part of the truck just fell in the out. These trucks would catch on fire. I remember uh, my partner, Sean's wife had a baby and I was on the phone with Bachman's and I hung up on the lady because the trucks parked outside of a window I was sitting by and flames are just shooting out the top. <laughs> oh my God. And, and I walk out and like four employees and one of the owners is standing out there. And I said, guys, get fix it. No, you just got to let it burn. <laughs> we got insurance. Right? So yes, we paid, we paid, you know, probably, um, 130% of revenue for, mm -hmm. for the thing. Yeah. We went back another brilliant move. We went back to the owner um, the prior owner who sold it to us because he had a note uh, on uh, part of uh, this, the purchase price because the seller, uh, when we called him out on some misrepresentations, he fessed up to it and was like, okay, I'm not going to fight you. Yep. I lied. So, because we found out pretty quick what a turd it was that we had bought. <laughs> Burning um, vans and uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just painful. So we, we go back to him and we said, listen, we're not going to pay you part of this note. He said, okay. And we said, and the rest of it, we're going to pay you via royalty. And he said, okay. And what that did was it freed up cash flow day one, but it increased the payment down the road because instead of paying him a fixed fee, we paid him a 2% royalty for a couple of years. And when we, you know, he sold us a company doing 25,000 a month when we're doing 250,000 a month, uh, we did not get the better end of that deal. Right, right, right. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't the dumbest thing we did. Um, so <laughs> we let's spent see, money on, on dumber. I was going to say, but so let, let's get into how you, how you, uh, got to those revenue numbers and we can go back to the radio. Cause I think what you guys did with the radio in the time and the, the, the leverage that you had and what you pulled off is amazing. Well, thank you. Um, we, it required that the world collapse. Um, so, um, <laughs> if when implementing this strategy, be sure to do it, um, right after all liquidity in the market, uh, dries up because of a massive housing crisis. So, you know, plan on that. put right, your yeah. business plan right around that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just wait for it. So what happened was, we we inherited this radio platform, uh, buying talk radio station that wasn't really producing results. Um, the average job acquisition was probably uh, the cost was you know close to two hundred bucks. So we had to have a four hundred five hundred dollar job average. So we're out doing you know very expensive carpet cleaning for very few people to uh, facilitate not firing a broken radio platform that we were on. So. Um, what happened was we got some good press. Um, we had pushed the, um, I'm sorry, my wife is texting. Did, can you still hear? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad she can make it in the podcast. Heidi says hi. Um, <laughs> so we, um, I had pushed for about a year to get uh, a, a PR piece put into the, um, the Star Tribune, the Minneapolis's big newspaper. And um, finally, um, broke him down. Um, uh, a business writer named Dick Youngblood, who was kind of a heritage, you know, a, 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 he, he was the business section uh, mm -hmm. for many years. And he, he did a piece on us that published September 11th, 2008. We bought the company September 18th, 2006. So we're two years in. I spent about a year trying to get uh, the press out there. And 
it was front page below the fold of the business section. And I don't know if it was because it was September 11th or what happened, but we blew up. We had just moved a week prior. And so our office wasn't really set up. And we had one computer terminal that you could actually schedule a job on. It wasn't web-based. It was, you know, we had software on that desktop and the phone started ringing. And I was like, oh, cool. It's 630 in the morning. And, you know, this article came out. Maybe we got some good mojo. Well, seven lines were lit up for probably seven weeks straight, seven days a week. so crazy for one piece of newspaper. Like, it's just (laughs) one piece of press. So we, I thought the scope of the opportunity in our market was going to be, you know, we could run a couple of trucks and be cute. The biggest player was doing four and a half million bucks. It was Stanley Steamer. We've all heard their commercials. They've got a jingle and all that fancy stuff. And we're just this little carpet cleaning company, but we're, you know, it's green before green was really, you know, a viable thing. Like there were plenty of green products out, but you, the assumption was you had to sacrifice quality to get green. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't lead with green. We said, Oh, by the way, we're green, but we've got badass carpet cleaning that actually works. And people piled on, people just went crazy. So our business tripled overnight because all of a sudden, you know, we, we were recognizable. We had a little bit of press. What do you do with your vehicles? I mean, did you have like seven more $140,000 burning vehicles or what was the, Oh, well, at this point, the housing crisis had not happened. This is September. You know, the markets were skittish, but you know, I was in mid October, early October, Lehman fails and the world collapses. Um, So, Fast forward a couple of weeks and the world falls apart. We're still getting all these calls. We've got five vehicles and there's no credit anywhere. I mean, nobody's going to lend anybody any money. Uh, Meanwhile, my partner had the housing company, the real estate brokerage, the title company. He he was joining several liability on $22 million in property development. Mm -hmm. It was 70% pre-sold and went down to 0% pre-sold because everyone backed out because nobody could qualify for a mortgage three weeks after our company starts blowing up. So, um, so we, we realize, okay, Jim's going to be in some doo-doo because his world is collapsing. Our world's blowing up, but what are we going to do? How how are we going to keep the momentum? And we had, we finally had some money in the bank and we said, well, um, look around the world. Uh, This is probably October or November or December of, Oh, eight. And we realized, well, all these other companies are pulling out of their radio spins because I, you know, I'm staying in touch with the radio stations. And what if we leverage that? And so we got all the radio stations. I mean, Frito-Lay is backing out and Coca-Cola is backing out. Chevy's not buying their ads. Northwestern Mutual. I mean, yeah. there's, we, we sat all these radio sellers down and said, Listen, we know you've got inventory you could drive a truck through. We're an awesome carpet cleaning company who's probably not able to buy any of your awesome radio. However, if you gave us a job, we could pay for it. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, the unsold seat flies with the airplane. Give up, don't just not run an ad or don't just give it to you know, Bells or Ford because they've always gotten freebies from you and always been a good customer. Build us into a good customer. We'll just backdoor it. We'll pay after mm-hmm. after it worked. And they said, "Screw you, screw you." They going <laughs> all throughout the room. Everybody told us where we could shove it. It's Seth, <laughs> the biggest station in town. And they said, "Tell us more." And they said no, but they said, 
we could do a hybrid of that. We do part pay for performance and part really, 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 really like a third of our normal rate for the best mini air radio in town. We had never bought something for hundreds of dollars on the radio. I was used to buying like $40 spots on the crappy talk station. <laughs> we signed up to buy $600 spots that were supposed to be close to $2,000 spots. And we came up with a philosophy working with this joker out of uh, Utah, uh, who was a pathological liar. Um, he was our media buyer, but helped us put this platform together <laughs> where, okay, we're, we're going to buy this really expensive radio. We're going to we're going to cut our price by 30% and we're going to do some razzle dazzle. And so I wrote really bad ads that the talent read really poorly. And originally we hadn't cut our price. We were three rooms for 189 bucks. Then we realized, wait a minute, let's try to just get in the door and sell as cheap as we can. We'll do a loss leader on the first three rooms, 129 bucks, 119 bucks. And I'll be the talent. So we did bookends where the radio talent, Terry Train on KQRS said, hey, I'm here with my good friend, Michael from Zero Res Carpet Cleaning. What's going on? I'd tell a goofy carpet anecdote for <laughs> you know, 40 seconds. And then she'd wrap it up with some jazz hands pricing and you know, razzle dazzle and give a call today for the great November special or whatever you know, season it was. And so we could do probably 450 jobs per month across the company. We launched the platform on KQ when everyone else told us you know, to buzz off uh, on early February of 09. And it was like 10 below. And we were begging them to cancel the ads because it was 600 bucks a minute. <laughs> and they said, nope, uh, this is, uh, you signed in ink and blood in, you know, with your firstborn child, you shall not cancel, you are screwed. And so nothing happened, no, no calls, no nothing. And then we made the changes where we lowered the price by 30%. I came on as the talent. And three weeks later, uh, the month that followed, we booked about 400 jobs just on that radio station. Holy cow. And these are, these are at the time, $350 jobs. So holy shit, we can't execute on any of this capacity. <laughs> I mean, demand way out outpaced uh, supply. So. We go, all right, we're now running seven days a week, which had, we had never done. We're running five or six jobs per truck instead of three. Um, and let's talk about buying some vehicles. Um, we're not buying the trucks that break down and catch on fire. We had been talking with a, a goofball, uh, Steve Polis, um, with Hydromaster. And we basically worked out that he was just going to lie to his boss. Um, he was engineering a truck for us because we've got this magic water. We couldn't just use an off-the-shelf truck because our water eats metal. Small little problem, right? So he's <laughs> engineering one that's stainless steel. So he's making stainless steel pumps and parts and nuts and bolts and whatever. And he went to his boss and they said, so they're going to buy 20 of them, right? He said, absolutely. We had committed <laughs> to buy one, but you can't do R&D and re-engineer a vehicle. And make money out of one. one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, they, they would have lost $2 million. So... <laughs> He said, oh, they'll definitely buy 20. Um, we bought one and we still didn't really have full-on permission from the franchisor to execute the model. But they said, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. They didn't, they didn't believe the laws of physics. Um, small little problem. So we're trying to teach them physics while 
getting, getting approval. <laughs> permission to buy equipment where the manufacturer's rep had lied to the manufacturer. So it's this great shell game of moving the parts along. Meanwhile, my partner had just filed for bankruptcy. So they shut down the credit card, freeze the bank accounts. So we don't have a bank to pay for any of this. And the and the phones are blowing up. We've, we've got you know hundreds of thousands of dollars booked on our schedule that you know we could clean if we had trucks that we could buy if we had a bank account. Oh my god! So um, how did what, was, <laughs> what question to ask next? Right, just, right, right, right. Um, curious on the what was the agreement with the radio show? So like how much like so you know, for the listeners that are probably thinking, you know, in the world of digital marketing these days, you can track all that stuff, give affiliate commission. So one is how did you determine those 400 calls came from the radio show? And then how, like, what was the actual spiff agreement or how did that all work? So the radio uh, platform required a level of visibility. So we had, there's hundreds of softwares out there that'll do it now, but um, we had one of the first, to my knowledge, web-based uh, tracking platforms. It was all user-driven. And in the office, the Sally would take down notes and say, how'd you hear about us? And they'd say, oh, we heard you on ABC station. Great. So they would put it into the system, but you literally couldn't schedule a job without answering the question, how'd you hear about us? Uh-huh. And the radio reps would have the ability to log into the software from their office and see all the results from all the stations. So that visibility was huge. We told them, we we fibbed just a little bit. We said the most we could ever possibly pay to acquire a customer is 50 bucks. And so we paid the the first, you know, 10,000 bucks or whatever it was that was agreed upon with uh, the radio station uh, to get on air. And then after $50 at a time that had been gobbled up, we'd pay them another 50. Um, Eventually, the goal was to get rid of that post-pay model. Mm-hmm. And just say we've seen what normalized results look like, and now we'll we just pay. pay you that up front. Yep. And if we do better, great. If we do worse, we'll it's our problem. Yeah. Yep. But the the real secret to success, uh, I think, in our business was one we came up with a, an awesome service model. Um, we uh, killed them with kindness. We followed uh, raving fans' uh, philosophy and and just gave big sloppy kisses and hugs. Uh, to everybody um, with the intention of, of trying to not buy their love next time. Mm-hmm. They're in the community. We don't need to reacquire them. We can just re-engage them through really cheap media, emails, postcards, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, we came up with uh, a, a de- service delivery model uh, through the equipment that didn't catch on fire or cause us massive pain. We realized in 2007 that per job, it cost us just to get our truck to the job. Hmm. So that's, um, we, we just added up all the, the blown tires, all the mechanics fees, all the, the towing expenses, all the, the fuel. And, uh, that didn't even ensure, you know, fixed costs like insurance, but on a per job basis, we were so out of line that it cost us 89 bucks to get the truck there. And so we took that to the franchisor and said, listen, we, uh, typically, it should be in the thirties. We, we need different equipment. And even though they didn't really un- understand the physics of it, um, we, we worked on them to help them understand why you didn't get a better cleaning product with their truck or wh- why it didn't matter as much that it was a bigger, batter truck that mm-hmm. they were selling. And the third thing that uh, changed our business was 
two parts. One was uh, how we bought media and how we packaged it and messaged it. And two, I really think was how you how we looked at client acquisition. So a typical business is saying, well, you know, I know half my marketing doesn't work. I just don't know which half. Mm-hmm. And we said, that's not going to fly. We need to track the shit out of it because I'm going to be a hundred years old trying to figure this thing out. That's not going to work for me. So we were impatient. So we became diligent. And then number two, we, we started to look at acquisition costs as the real driver. And I think a lot of businesses are, are doing that now that um, uh, AdWords and, and Bing and online platforms are as prevalent as they were. But in 2009, it was, it was more about impressions and how you felt about it totally. than can I really get analytic. And we said, listen, cost of goods sold is, you know, call it 40%. It came down as we scaled, but 40% to do the job. If we spend 50%, to acquire the job, we've got 10% left behind. So 50% to acquire the job, that means I need, if I spend a dollar, I got to get two back. So my acquisition cost or my ROI is two to one. Mm-hmm. So spend $10,000, I need to get $20,000 back for a program to not suck. And we changed the metric from how efficient can I get at buying media to how can I buy as much media as possible without losing money. So rather than trying to make money on a particular radio station, I said, how do I scale it? If I'm getting a four to one ROI, great. What happens if I spend 20% more? I don't care if the ROI is four to one, as long as it's above two to one. Mm -hmm. Because today I'm in scaling mode with the philosophy, let's go out and clean as many houses as we can put those people on an island, dig a moat around them, put some alligators in it, kill them with kindness and hope they repeat. We're, we're buying trucks like crazy because you know we, we wrote an RFP to a bunch of banks. A couple came back. One said, okay, we're going we're gonna to partner with you. What year uh, is this? This is, this is right as the shit's happening. This is 09. Okay. And um, my business partner is filing for bankruptcy. Bank accounts are frozen. Credit lines frozen. Credit cards cut up. And we said... But look at our bookings. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars flowing in. If we could uh, cater to more of these customers, we'd be able to buy the trucks in cash. And they said, we'll let you buy a truck. Well, we bought five that year um, in 09. And then we bought nine or 10 a year for years on down the road. So that, that the manufacturer's rep was, <laughs> he, he held true to his, his, uh, quote unquote word, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, not necessarily on purpose, but he sold, you know, maybe at hundreds and hundreds of these things to zero rise now. So we, our job at that point was let's scale this thing. We've got the media model, we've got the service model and we've got, um, the, uh, delivery model. But then we realized, well, crap, we don't actually know if these customers like us. They paid us. But is that evil scheme of making them love us, putting them in the moat or on the island, mm-hmm. digging the moat, putting the alligators in and getting them to call us again? We don't know if that's going to happen because people don't, they're not engaging a carpet cleaner quarterly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, typically, it's every couple of years. So we said, well, crap, we need to actually find out if this thing's going to work. Otherwise, we got to shut her down because we're taking on millions of dollars of debt buying these $75,000 pieces of equipment and all, all this training and all this crap. So we, we started, uh, we found a company, uh, 
called Listen 360. They were called Sistino at the time, and they did a net promoter score survey. Oh, cool. Um, so for I'm sure most people know, but those who don't, it's a it's one question on a scale of one to ten. How likely are you to refer me to your friends, family, colleagues, whatever? Do you like us? Are you willing to go out on a limb for us? And if you get a nine or a ten, it's they're a promoter. They're actively out. Yep, I'm all over it. I'm I'm going to tell everybody. Seven or eight, okay. They're they're passive. They're not. They don't hate you. They they don't love you. They're, it's, it's an opportunity. Equation, right? Yep. I, I'm not going to say I got nothing bad to say, but I'm not inspired. And then if it's a zero through six, it's oh crap. You know these people actually have a you know they they weren't thrilled or they were actively it's unhappy. It's and the net promoter score net promoter score takes the percentage of promoters nines and tens minus the percentage of detractors sevens and eights. And in the service business, having a forty or fifty percent net promoter score is deemed you know average or or maybe even good. Um, before we started managing it. Uh, when we first implemented, we were in the low 70s. We worked our way up into the 80s. And, you know, it was Minnesota nice. We're killing them with kindness. We're out actively trying to get people to like us. Were you then tracking, Michael, um, how like these people, you know, with that, I don't know if you're still doing the intake form of how often these people were uh, repeat buyers and what the like lifetime value of a customer was? Yep. And so the Lifetime value was kind of tricky. Uh, we had to make, we had to fudge it a little bit, but repeat customers spent more. Um, customers who, uh, the, the Listen360 platform tracked all this stuff. Customer satisfaction based on what they bought overall and what they were sold on site, what they were sold over the phone. And we started to get analytic with it and realized that, you know, people who had a better experience bought more and people who bought more typically had a better experience. And I don't know which way it went, Mm -hmm. but people who said, okay, I'm going to turn and burn. I'm just going to clean and leave. Uh, Those customers uh, didn't see the razzle dazzle. They paid less, but they got less value. They felt less good about it. So we started to realize customers really don't remember what you did for them. It's how they felt after you did it that sticks with them. Mm -hmm. And so we became very you know, service focus, bring in the groceries. If Mrs. Johnson's emptying the car, you know, play with the dog, wipe down the baseboard, show them you're sweating. It became less about the steak and more about the sizzle. How did you, so with, with the fact that you're scaling, you figure out the media platform, you got the trucks and how about the, I mean, today's environment's a little bit different than 10 years ago, but like the people and the infrastructure systems, like what, what did you do to like not just be able to deliver this, but then also build the, the the infrastructure, be able to handle it from the people and the processes. So you knew that I was glossing over the real shit show, right? Uh, <laughs> you're, you're good at this. I, I know your wily ways, Ryan. So uh, it was, it was a hot mess because I mean, you remember the millions of people who became unemployed and you know, it, the world changed in a way. So we were, you know, not the only people in town, but we're hiring like crazy. And we initially made the mistake of saying, okay, let's hire the best resume for you know someone who, who would go out and do a professional uh, white collar gig. Okay, right? so you could probably go to every single uh, real estate brokerage and oh, yeah. <laughs> I, had mor- I had mortgage <laughs> brokers. Yeah, I had mortgage brokers. I had a university professor. I had you know, six figure consultants working <laughs> on my carpet trucks. And, and I thought, you know, I can relate to these people. They're all awesome. Well, the job of cleaning carpets, I'm not going to say it sucks, 
but it takes a very particular uh, set of motivations and skills to thrive at it because it's really hard. I was and, just going to say, you got a guy, that, a guy or a gal that's been used to making six figures. I can't imagine they're taking Mrs. Jones's uh, groceries in and being really super happy about it. <laughs> um, no, we were uh, the plan for them to not get evicted. We were not part of their career trajectory. Um, <laughs> now, we, we, our top guy, um, he's, I think he's part robot, but he's made six figures cleaning carpet. <laughs> and we've had plenty of guys in the 60s and 70s uh, thousands awesome. uh, yeah. cleaning carpet. But those are people who fit in the box. So mm -hmm. we started to realize hire people, you know, clearly define what the box looks like. What is the job? What are the benefits? What are the pain points? Clearly define it. And then don't sell people on getting in the box. Mm -hmm. Bring on people who thrive right. in that box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we hired lots of overqualified people and invested hundreds of thousands in training. Uh, to watch them leave. And then we started realizing that, you know, you, you got to bring on the right people. So we, we started, we tried everything from cattle calls, you know, bring in 30 people and who wants a job you start Monday to uh, really selling people to try to, you know, not dupe them, but sell them on the, Oh, what a great environment we had um, to, you know, trying to get people to sell us on why they should get a job. And it was really messy because we had misalignment for a handful of years um, where a bunch of the team members just weren't quite the right fit. So there was, there was a lot of turnover and a lot of challenge. And we had a policy back then. We wouldn't hire anyone with experience because we thought, you know, it, it's, we, we want to bring on nice people and teach them how to do it our way rather than bringing on carpet cleaners and, and trying to teach them how to be nice, nice yeah. people the way we need them to be nice. I was gonna say how, what, what is the, like along the kind of the, the, the main chunk of the growth of the years, what was the average? It was, did you average like the 400 per radio? And so what was the typical volume? And then how were you, like, what did your hiring practice? Was it like you were interviewing 20 people a week and not, like, what was the churn? That was correlating to the, the growth and the numbers. So um, 400, we only saw that two or three times where you got 400 jobs from one station. And you know, at some point, you're buying too much on a station. Um, you, you don't want to be on every minute. Um, right. if, it's, if the show starts being about zero res, you have a problem. What we would do was trying to buy the right radio and create the right relationships with the talent uh, that's doing the ads such that they're working you into the, the content of the show mm -hmm. because buying an ad is, is cute being talked about when they're talking about, you know, mother's day or going to Ireland and how, um, you know, the hotel room needed zero res like that you can't buy. Right. But it works you in and you become part of the vernacular. So, but you asked about results, a good, on a big station, top tier station, Minneapolis is a great radio market. There's probably four or five uh, top rated stations. Bringing in 200 jobs in a month would be uh, massively successful. Um, we changed the service offering. So we were selling $300 jobs instead of $400 or $450 jobs. Um, we were just doing a lot more of them. And an ROI on a station would typically be uh, on a successful station. Uh, at maturity would be in the 
three and a half to one range. So pretty cool when you can spend, you know, 20 grand and bring in 70, $80,000. Oh, shit. So and that's new customer acquisition where yeah. you're still getting all the branding with all the people who aren't buying and you're getting all the repeat customers to get excited about you uh, and call you up without you having to, to do anything. So then how, what, like how many people were you hiring or interviewing on a weekly basis in order to, to fulfill all those jobs? Well, so we, in, let me talk about revenue real quick in, uh, we bought the company was doing about 300,000 uh, bucks. We did 700 in 07 and then about 1.1, 1.2, in 08, 09, we did two and a half million, then 5 million, then 8 million, then 11 million. <laughs> That's so awesome. Um, and then we started opening up out of state. And when I left, we were doing, uh, I left the business, sold it. Um, then we'll talk about that uh, awesome experience um, in our next podcast. But, no sarcasm uh, we, whatsoever, right? No, no sarcasm. Um, <laughs> we were doing maybe 17 or 18 million last year across you know uh, five locations. We had six at one point. Um, how many, how so many employees when you left? Probably about 180, give okay. or take. Um, so we were hiring, it, it was, it was, a a chicken and egg. Do you hire the person, then get the truck or do you get the truck, then get the person? And, um, the answer is yes, you, you do both as quick as you can. So, um, <laughs> they, they were building these trucks as one-offs because they, you know, they had the equipment, but no one had ever pre-ordered and we were just one client. And, you know, all of a sudden other franchises started saying, well, I want this truck too. And so there's six or eight franchises that, you know, most businesses uh, in our franchise system were not thriving. That time they hadn't adopted uh, the Minneapolis slash Atlanta model that, that we were using for buying radio and uh, they were charging too much and, you know, all sorts of problems that we had not fixed, but um, come to resolution with. Um, and so as people started adopting the media model and the service and pricing model, they started buying the trucks too. So all of a sudden there's this backlog of, you know, they're making them one at a time out in, you know, a suburb of Seattle. And we're like, well, we need eight of them. <laughs> and they're like, well, we don't have eight vans. We don't have parts free. So we start pre-ordering, hoping that, you know, we're going to actually want to buy them <laughs> and then hiring hoping that the truck will be ready will actually <laughs> needed to align with demand that we can't really predict, but we hope continues. So it, it was a real uh, shell game for a minute there. But um, so if we had it, if we hired, if we bought a truck and we're running it seven days a week, um, you know, we can, we can maybe get, you know, we're asking people to work five days, sometimes six days uh, a week, but, you know, best case, we're getting maybe 20 days, 22 days out of them in a month. So we're hiring one and a half people per truck. Per truck and we're trying to work backward on, okay, if, if we're doing four jobs and it's going to work 30 days, that's 120. You know, you, you start doing the math backwards, thinking that you're smart. And then it snows and, you know, you have to reach schedule everybody. Um, so it, it, it was a hot mess. And none of this was, you know, this, um, my partner and I were, were analytic, but we weren't MBAs. We weren't uh, as data driven. So the systems we're using are, oh, maybe I'll, I'll map this out today on a, a legal pad with a, my 
my crayons rather than let's build a spreadsheet and formula formulaically identify, you know, what hiring trends look like. That's so, awesome. and you can imagine any business. I mean, if you run a hot dog cart or a, a janitorial company, the systems you run when you're doing 300,000 and then 700,000, then 2 million, then five and eight, they're going to be irrelevant. You know, you're going to outgrow your systems and outgrow your training procedures. And until you start to uh, really evolve and say, I'm going to document my systems and I'm going to say, this is the way zero res does it rather than this is the way Michael does it or Sean does it or Jimmy does it. You really don't have a chance at getting consistency and scalability. So what, so, were, some of the, what were some of the things that you did to accomplish that, that you you thought were that that worked out was it whether it was a system or a dispatching thing or like certain you know kind of epiphanies that you guys ended up going through that that ended up being successful with the model well um it was it was just a series of um predictable accidents and problems and fires that we fought that helped us realize this ain't working because we keep running into similar crap that holds us back and in hindsight we probably should have predicted it would happen so, you know, it, everything from how we distributed the schedule to how we thought about capacity, all of those things needed to, uh, we started to realize because we got burned by that, which should have been obvious that we needed to, uh, to give visibility and planning a, uh, a, make those a priority in the business. So we started to invest in software. We started to invest in people to, you know, rather than having um, the, the phone team uh, who, who's great at answering calls and giving great customer service, instead of having them just place jobs on the schedule, we'd have them place jobs on the schedule and we started to hire someone to manage the schedule. Because, you know, if you have someone driving, you know, 45 minutes from job to job, they can't excel and do the same number of jobs or, or with the same job satisfaction as the person who's got a succinct planned out route. Mm -hmm. So we started to invest first in people uh, to fill roles and then in uh, in people to develop systems to make those roles more efficient. Um, was, there, was there anything as you were doing the hiring and stuff like that, like what, what worked and didn't work? I mean, it sounds like you kind of went through a couple of different hiring practices and stuff like that, but like, you know, or was it like you said, just random luck finding the right people, the right positions and stuff. I mean, like, like I was going, what I said earlier is like, I mean, the sheer quantity of people you had to hire has got, it had to just been like exhausting. Oh, it was, it was really painful. We, in the early years, we didn't have problem finding people. We had problems uh, finding the right people because we were not looking for the right people. Mm -hmm. When we started looking for the right people, it got easier and our problems were less about uh, attracting them because you know, 2012, 13, um, there were plenty of uh, unemployment was still you know mm -hmm. decently high. Now it's like two, two and a half percent yeah. in Minnesota. Percent um, for the people that want jobs. <laughs> yeah. So um, it wasn't difficult attracting people, but we had to figure out the right people. Then we brought on the right people, and they would still fire us because we wouldn't onboard them. I, I look at onboarding as not, you know, the, the one day event. It's, it's like a two month process of getting them to become part of your culture. Yep. And um, so we, we had a one day orientation. We started to shift that mentality and work harder and harder to have the right culture and community and 
make people feel like they were a part of the team and that they were good at their job, that they knew how to do what they did with a, a level of excellence that gave them some self-worth. I mean, when you, when you talk to people about why they have a job or what's important to them about the job, usually pay comes up. But with millennials, especially, it's usually not in the top three. I mean, what am I doing work that's valuable? Do they respect me? Um, do I have some flexibility with my time, pay? Uh, do I work weekends, et cetera? You know, nice people. Those, I don't know that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we ignored that and said, let's just pay them well. Uh, and we didn't even pay that well. We got smarter and, and worked on culture and community and that sort of stuff and tried to bring meaning to the work and feedback to the work. Um, that helped a whole lot. But even today, uh, turnover and retention are major issues for the company. Mm-hmm. So as we're as we're kind of wrapping up the first round of this, um, I'm curious is as you as you scale like that, and then and because you know that was the the kind of the foundation of our family business too of how crazy we grew is did you were you mind because of how um analytical you were around the the return on investment of the spend and the the, the uh, vans and the people and all that stuff were you were you monitoring like your profits and how you're reinvesting that and like what the normalization was because that'll kind of tee back into uh round two when we're talking about value valuations and how you guys ended up splitting up everything but like what was the trajectory of the profits? I mean, was it, did you self-fund a lot of this stuff or did you lean on your bank a lot to continue you know, hitting those hurdles? So we, we realized, and this is going to sound crazy, we realized, uh, and one of the big pivotal moments that we had when we started staffing up, we realized we were too profitable for a service company because in, in probably 09 and 2010, we made per employee more than was, was reasonable. Because we didn't have any infrastructure, we, um, you know, I, it, per truck is maybe an easier way to look at it. Because with admin staff, I don't remember the exact numbers, but per truck, um, a healthy carpet cleaning company um, that's not a franchise, um, maybe they're making fifteen thousand bucks per month per truck. We peaked at about thirty nine thousand <laughs> per month per truck. So that's working seven days a week. Yeah, that's working, you know, and that's not with that. That's not having a healthy dose of night work. That's that's all ninety percent residential, three hundred dollar carpet cleanings. Yeah, we worked pretty hard, and the problem was, um, we didn't have a support staff or a leadership team to make that work easy to to execute. Uh, so it it was really painful, and we we just said let's sacrifice some margin. So that this thing can scale and prop and hopefully not explode in our faces, mm-hmm. because you know when we were doing thirty nine thousand per month per truck, I was still you know getting phone calls at two in the morning when people had you know bad tacos and couldn't come in. Um, you know, <laughs> I, not that I should have been in some you know ivory tower just working on the business, but, but right. <laughs> but you know, crap. You know, we we're killing it. We're making great money. Our margins are awesome. Let's bring in some talent to make this a little easier to execute and fill in some of the gaps. Because uh, at that point, there were uh, myself and the real estate partner were the two owners, and neither of us were super awesome or super enthusiastic about being the people who made the trains run on time. So, so when you were looking at all this, Michael, did you 
and, and then we can kind of put a, you know, a cliffhanger for the listeners, but were you monitoring or like, because your dad was in M&A and you had, you know, I don't know what the, the circle of influences that you had, which we can talk about in the next episode, but were you like tying this to business valuation at all? Were you always looking at profits? Because, you know, when you look at the, and you probably realize a lot of this after the fact, but it's like with the infrastructure and how value is driven out of a company, did, did you have any kind of, um, you know, foresight into that, or did that kind of come into play when you're looking at the, the buyouts? So when I started, I, I told you I uh, thought I'd have a uh, three-year horizon being active in the business. Fast forward three years, we're just on the cusp of massive growth, and we're starting to take off. We, we've got these bottlenecks. I started to realize, um, let's focus on seeing what this can be. Because I didn't get into the carpet cleaning company thinking it it could scale the way that I started to realize it could. So in having the realization about where the market was going, seeing the rest of the world kind of collapsing and us growing, I stopped thinking about, well, what could I, what am I going to do next? And started thinking about where can this thing go? Mm-hmm. So being part of this massive growth thing, we didn't really focus on... My plan had been to focus on, all right, how do I make this business worth as much as I can? And the focus shifted to how can we scale this thing and figure out how much market share it can take Mm -hmm. so that down the road, we can have the conversation about how much Mm -hmm. is this thing worth? And and that there's there's a a big mistake that we made. Um, Had I been focused on how do we make this thing as valuable today as we can? I probably would have spent a lot of time looking at a subscription model, reoccurring revenue models, et cetera. What we did instead was how do we figure out how to scale this thing up so we can uh, bring in as many customers and make them as happy as possible and let the natural tendencies in the market have them repeating on whatever scale they're on. So today, as the business exists, it has, you know, without doing anything, probably 1,500 or 2,000 people call to give 300 bucks to the company, plus all the marketing efforts, bringing all this stuff. So they're, they're doing great, but, and that's just the Minnesota location, but there isn't a reoccurring revenue model where we know that, you know, uh, every month we're getting a check from mm-hmm. each of the people in the database. So it, mm-hmm. it's, it's largely inefficient because we didn't have that focus. Mm-hmm. It's still doing great, but could be, uh, slightly different. The, yep. the model, could be a lot sexier. So as we're wrapping up here and we'll, we'll talk more about that in the next episode, is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with for this episode, as far as, you know, as it relates to growing and scaling and some of the, you know, your big takeaway that you had, or maybe just kind of highlight something you've already said. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the big thing that kind of blows people hair people's hair back is when I talk about acquisition cost of a customer and, uh, encourage people to stop trying to be as efficient as possible and try to figure out what is the most you can stomach pain without losing money and run toward that and try to, you know, obviously try to be more efficient than that. But if you, if you know that your, your cogs are 40%, shoot for a two to one ROI. And when you have a four to one ROI, great. Mm-hmm. Try to figure out what if I spend more and the ROI comes down, but uh, the net revenue and the net income go up. So mm-hmm. if you're in a business where you have a reasonable expectation that you can 
re-engage that customer and get them to buy again. Because if you do that, then once they're part of your ecosystem, you know, it it's a lot easier to retain them and it's kind of hard to screw up until you really screw up. So it's you know, our job is to run and try and figure out how do we get as many customers as possible. And today they've got, you know, 200 plus thousand carpet cleaning customers. It's uh, interesting, like the, the stat that John Warlow has. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote a book called Built to Sell. And uh, he he said, like, what the studies have shown is that if someone gives you gives you their credit card, it's like, a, I'm not, I don't even know what the hell it was. It was like three or 10 times the chance that they're going to just buy from you again because they've already made the mental commitment and they've done it. And so, sure. yeah, I mean, it's it, the repeat customers. It's just the the mental fatigue is not there of them having to decide whether they want that vendor or not. If you did most of the things right, like you said. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I think um, moving forward in businesses I'm engaged with, I'm actively looking for how do I put in as soon as possible a subscription type model. Mm-hmm. But in terms of cliffhangers for, for your next show, that's morsels. Uh, that they already heard, but cliffhangers, um, lawsuits, um, maybe not as sexy as some of the lawsuits and not with the parties you would have expected. Uh, but there are lawsuits in the story. There's a breakup. Uh, there's, uh, there's lawyers, there's, um, burning the house down and sold the business. And I'm yet still in business with my former partner. Uh, so That's there's iron cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So figure that one out, right? It's <laughs> a hot mess, but you know, it all kind of makes sense, but I, I, I did a lot of soul searching and I feel like I'm, I'm in a really good place. Got some money and some runway. Um, got a lot of love loss because you know, my firstborn child, this company is not mine anymore. Yep. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And but if people want to do some digging and want to reach out to you between now and the next episode, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, you know, uh, there are two ways. And can I tell your listeners what I do, yeah. uh, what my job is now? Yeah, yeah, um, so, um, my, uh, my world, I am in private equity. Um, and I've got a couple of verticals that are fun. One is uh, investing uh, in turnarounds where companies are broken or dysfunctional. They need capital for growth. They need leadership. They need strategy. Um, so I've got that investment arm, but I'm also working with companies that are stuck. So companies that kind of need a, to be put into the incubator so that they can grow the right way. Um, think of the technician who can't get off the truck or, or the team that uh, can't work on the business because they're stuck working in the business. Uh, we provide capital and buy a minority stake in those businesses. And my partner and I uh, are on the board of directors. We're not running your business, but we're your unpaid consultants. Most consultants you give money to and they give you ideas and you try to run with them. We give you money. We help you with the ideas and we help you with the implementation. So it's a whole lot of fun and people can kind of request more information about it at redhookinvestments.com redbookinvestments.com. And you can reach out to me at michaelc6 at gmail.com. Happy to talk to people about what they got going on. Awesome. And we will be diving more into the next episode and uh, and also on what you're doing too. We might be able to have time on the next episode to dive more into your service private equity model, which I think is absolutely genius. So with that being said, I appreciate you coming on the show and looking forward to next week. Thanks so much. 
So who else wants to go out and buy a bunch of radio ads and a carpet cleaning company? <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Michael. He had a lot of really good insights on what it actually takes to grow a company because it takes a lot of risk, tolerance for ambiguity. And I think about the shell game that he was playing with the vehicles, the hiring and the sales. It's really what it's all about and the adrenaline that comes with it. The biggest takeaway I have out of this uh, section of the two-part series is that it just takes balls to grow a company because you can't just sit back and let things happen. And what Michael and his partner did to grow it was awesome. And I think they deserve a lot of the hard work that they put in. And if you want to hear what was really going on between him and his partner and why Michael would exit such a great business, tune into next week because I believe that the second part of this is so crucial because Everybody that looks at entrepreneurs and business owners, and we all see each other's revenue, we see each other's buildings and each other's employees, but you just never really know what's going on behind the scenes. And I think it's unbelievably important to realize that everybody has their issues and their problems. And that's really where the rubber hits the road and how you handle those different situations. And Michael is unbelievably transparent and frank, you know, self-aware in the next part of this episode and this two-part series. So please tune in because he's got a lot of good insights that I think are unbelievably important for anybody that's in a partnership and how those partnerships can impact what you want to do, the money that comes with it, the different goals and objectives that everybody has at the table. So with that being said, tune into the next week. If you have any spare time and a ton of patience, please go on to iTunes, give me a rating, suggest any guests that you think might have a great story to share on the show, whether it's an entrepreneur that you know that has sold a business and is willing to share it, or it's an advisor or some piece of technical information that you think everybody should know. With that being said, I will see you next week.